0: Welcome to What I See, the podcast where we uncover the stories of visionaries, innovators, and entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore the big ideas and challenges shaping our future. And now, our hosts, Mark O'Donnell and Louis Schiff.
1: Hey, Mark. How are you doing this week? Awesome. How are you doing, Louis? Fabulous. I'm so happy to see you. Friday has become the day we record this podcast, and it's become my most anticipated, with pleasure, day of the week because... I get to get all my bad juju out i get to get all my opinions out i have to as you know if you're a boss you have to keep a lot of stuff to yourself today we get to say what's on our minds
2: yeah and i feel the same and and just before we we started as i was saying that this is really an opportunity to let our freak flags fly as visionary entrepreneurs are looking out into the world and just seeing what's coming down the pike and how we can help our clients navigate that better, how we can navigate our own businesses a little bit better. Um, and we have a guest today. We have a guest today. So Bob Snyder was a client of mine as an EOS implementer quite a few years ago. So welcome to the show, Bob.
0: Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Louis, for inviting me.
1: Yeah. As our first guest, Bob, you'll have to come back for like our thousandth show. You'll have to come back and talk about what it was like to be in the first, the first guest ever.
0: I will, I will absolutely do that. (laughs) Yeah. I will absolutely do that.
1: So now the other, Mark and I are just entering into this podcast world in terms of this kind of opinion conversation format and Mark wanted Bob to be here. So Mark, tell us a bit about why Bob is our first guest.
2: Yeah. So Bob, you have run a, a great business, a big business in mechanical construction, doing all sorts of different things that requires union labor and you were the first person that came to mind that has really success, successfully navigated what that looks like at least as far as i can tell and we see in the news with starbucks and amazon warehouses going into to unions uh, apple stores you know so you see in the headlines quite often that large groups of large organizations that their workforce for whatever reason think that going to a union is the the right way to to have a job to be employed and and look out into their futures and so I just wanted to have a, a conversation about because from my perspective when I think union I think bureaucracy I think that's where all innovation and good ideas go to die and you're gonna have to you know when you work in a world where you can't be fired well then the idea of productivity And I could be totally wrong, maybe you can be fired. The idea of productivity is not really at the forefront of what that's like. And So I don't wanna get you in any trouble here, but what do you think about all that?
0: I actually think you wanna get me in trouble here, which is fine. Yes, I totally do. You're letting me be a freak (laughs) freak visionary, so that's cool. So I think people use the word unions as kind of this overlying piece of the puzzle, but there's a lot more to this idea of a union. There's many different types, there's many different kinds you know, you have a union, the school teachers union that you have, all of the airlines have unions, but most of them do anyway, but those unions are actually confined to that company. I live in the world of multi-trade unions where I'm hiring craftspeople. That's much different than, you know, a, a teacher's union. They provide training to the people They provide benefits for them. I have complete right to hire and fire them whenever I want. I sit with them on their apprenticeship program. So we really try to make it more of a partnership um, where they bring certain things to actually to the table of value instead of just being a union in the traditional sense of protecting the employee. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, it does feel often just like a teacher's union or something like that, but it is really different. So I think there's, you know, you got to think that way, first of all. Secondly, unions in general, their biggest issue, I believe, is that you know they're they're a political system. So you have to be you have to understand that you can't you can't ignore that. People hate the unions because they just don't like the unions. But if you actually understand that they're a political system that was created, and they operate that way, you can work with them fine. I don't have union issues really. Most of the issues I have with the unions are me not doing my job or are my company not doing my job? So as a visionary, I never put this word union in the way of what I think about in the future. They may be here, they may not be here. I just don't even think of it that way. There are labor workforce right now for our field craftsmen. It's a little bit of a pain in the butt times, but if i got to go find 20 or 30 or 50 people, I can go call the hall and they'll do the best they can to get me all those people in three days. You know, they do take care of training. They do care. So there is benefits to them as well. But Mm I mostly just, you know, either I I choose to be positive about it because if you're not positive, then you're automatically assumed negative. And I just don't operate that way as a visionary. I mean, it just isn't in the way. I'm more concerned about what Binsky can do as a contractor to make us the best we can be and looking forward. Let me ask you,
1: one of the reasons I think this comes into maybe my worldview a bit. Although I will preface this by saying I actually have come from a, a my father's side, a long history of union organizers. That's very different than union workers, but union organizers. I think about how a lot of folks say in these fields like construction, where it's a, we call it labor, even though they're craftsmen, which is probably a more, better word, we think of them as using their minds and their bodies to do their work. And therefore, they really do need someone looking out for them because your body is only good for 20 or 30 years in terms of work. And there's some real dangers out there and someone needs to protect that that body and that that against that danger. There's this other thing where Mark mentioned Apple and Starbucks, where we don't really think of them as laborers. We're starting to think of them as knowledge workers, although you mentioned the teachers union, which is interesting one, because that's that's a knowledge worker as well. But Mm -hmm. I think some of us who work in knowledge fields are starting to learn about the role of unions or the possible intrusion of unions and saying, how does that work with a knowledge worker, a white collar desk oriented knowledge worker versus that person that you're talking about, which is a physical laborer. Again, I don't want to minimize how smart and how capable they are, but the body is a big part of that job. Again,
0: I, I consider all my guys, knowledge workers. There is no distinction to me. It, the, the difference between a good craftsman and one who's fair is their brains most of the time. It's not because they can weld faster. When you really study production, the end of the day, that's not the difference between being productive or not, whether you can weld fast or weld slow. It's, it's all the other things that come into a production system. It's the it's the planning, it's the standing around, it's it's the it's all those kinds of knowledge based thinking that gets you to the next stage. So I don't whether you're knowledge or not knowledge, I don't know that really it really makes a difference. I think they're just people that when they come together, good things and bad things can happen. And there's really positive things with the unions, for instance. You know, if you have a large, like the, the I, we would deal with the United Association, they're looking into a, a, a healthcare plan for all of their members, which is 350,000 people. That's a much better deal than even a local level where they have 2000 people or me providing that service. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of good things that can be looked at and, and a lot of advantage to the scale of just the number of people when you start looking at. It.
1: But isn't the premise that's kind of embedded in what you just said, that that worker who's going to work for you for two, three, six months, nine months, when you don't have work for that individual, they're going to go back to the union hall and they'll be dispatched somewhere else because that's where the scale comes from that you just described in a way they work for the union and they're temporarily lent out to you. And then they go back and work for the union and then go to some, someone else who needs them. I mean, is, if that's what you're describing as the system, are you suggesting that the Apple worker, when Apple says, "Hey, we don't need you for the next couple of months," then they go back and end up at Starbucks because they're kind of a retail union
0: union member? Well, it doesn't really work that way because I have uh, I have let's say now maybe three hundred fifty people working for me in unions, and I would say twenty percent of them have been with me for ten years or longer. So it doesn't. I don't treat them like union workers. I treat them like Binsky employees. Yes, there's ebbs and flows, but, you know, you assume you have the work and you pick and choose individuals by the capabilities. I can call people back from the hall if I want them. There's, they don't have total control of my manpower at all. I control it all. And it's not that much different. If this guy doesn't do his job, I lay them off or they're the first guy to get laid off on a project. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't, I don't look at it as all that different. They go back when to then- the hall.
1: When back, that happens, right? when you say, for whatever reason, for talent or for need, I'm going to send Mark back to the hall. Mark has the consistency of health care and I guess whatever kind of services are part of that union membership because he's been paying into that system. And maybe you have been as well. And so it seems to me like consistency is one of the great deliverables, great benefits of union membership. You may not get paid if you're not working, but you do have some fundamental services like health care that stay with you because you are a member of that union, right? So consistency is one of the great things that unions provide. That's to is, was that fair to say?
0: Yeah, they do. They they absolutely they they buffer, right? They buffer the downtimes. So you know, you have to work X number of hours to get your health care. Eventually, that runs out, though. Eventually, if you don't work for three years, you don't health care anymore, right? Or you know, you become Ill, you become ineligible for it. So, but it does tend to buffer those things for the person. So that's a great thing for the people. Now, let's let's not it costs money for that. So we're paying additional health care costs for that, right? But of course. what's you know, the universe it all it all costs money. If the person doesn't have health care and he goes to the doctor. Someone's paying for it, whether we like it or not, right? That's so. Is that any really different? So yeah, I think it creates a little bit of safety net for the union employee. It's also force manages their money to some extent, where they do have pensions and 401 ks and things like that that the union kind of oversees for them. Where a lot of these individuals that wouldn't necessarily happen. So yeah, I think there's a safety net there, and there's a, there's a stability that's performed that that that's taken care of. But I I don't again like when I look forward. I just, to me, my world, the unions just doesn't matter to me. I, I, I look at it as it's one less thing I have to do, you know, getting somewhat qualified or at least baseline qualified people. I don't really worry about that issue. So it's That's a, a big it's issue. really a,
2: a recruiting mechanism for you then. And then Bob, when you talk about the additional costs as opposed to using union labor, which you do... How does that allow you to compete in the marketplace? And so, if I'm if I'm Starbucks, if I'm Apple, if I'm Binsky and Snyder doing these big, huge, complex mechanical construction projects, and I think about the the coffee shop next door. Now, Apple's a little bit different than say a Starbucks would be, but if if I have Starbucks and next door opens up a, a coffee shop that doesn't use union labor and I can charge 30% less for the same ish and I can create the same experience. What does that do to competition in in general when you have companies that are are using unions, those that are not, and how does it come out in terms of the quality of the customer experience? Like can I can a union barista give me a better cup of coffee than a non-union barista?
0: It could, but I don't know if it has anything to do with the unions or not. Well, it it would assumably
2: increase the (laughs) the costs, right? So you're either less profitable or you charge
0: more, right? Do unions cost more? I mean, kind of, maybe. I don't, uh, you know, that's the perception. Unions are more expensive. It's more expensive than the union. I'm not so sure that that's completely the case. Yeah, Mark,
1: I'm going to push back on this with you. Even if it does cost more. And I'll just, mm-hmm. I'll, I'm will going to take the position of, of the worker here, yep. you know, these companies like Starbucks or Apple are extremely profitable. Mm-hmm. And so if they, if, a, if an outside, if an outside system, meaning a union forces them to divert, to divert some of their profits, because it provides these high value benefits to workers, mm-hmm. then whether they pass that cost along onto the consumer or not is up to them, of course. But there are some heavy-duty profits coming out of these Apples and Starbucks. And you could make the case that – this is a hard case to make because we're entrepreneurs and you know, you're know you entitled to all the profit you make. But mm-hmm. you could make the case that there is a kind of a gross – I don't mean gross in, in accounting terms. I mean gross in terms of icky. Yeah, disgusting. <laughs> Gross <laughs> amount of profits yeah. that a company can make while its workers are still struggling to access things like healthcare. And that somehow – and this is sort of a moral position, not, a, not an economic one. Somehow they should be forced to give up some of those profits to provide some of that support and maybe, maybe eat it.
2: Yeah. And, and and maybe that's true. I I will say though, that those large organizations are taking advantage of economies of of scale and scope and they're only that profitable because they're that big. And if you take it down to the worker level, well, that one Starbucks is not going to be very profitable as compared to, you know, Joe's coffee next door if they have to pay more for for the labor. So ultimately would just break down the economies of, of scale and scope that those large organizations are taking advantage of, which ultimately leads to a poor experience for the consumer. And everyone has to pay more because we pay less for coffee that is sourced you know wherever Starbucks coffee is sourced from, we just pay less for better coffee because they have that reach, that scope, that scale based on the labor they have, and so you squeeze the profit out of them, and now the the the, the incentive to take advantage of that that scale goes away.
0: I mean, I think the big in in my world, the big problem with the unions is. The amount of money it takes and we have to spend on the other things, the stuff that doesn't go directly into the union man's pocket. We're in a pretty, New Jersey it's pretty expensive. A pipe fitter journeyman, their base pay is, let's call it 55, 60 bucks an hour, right? Mm -hmm. That's what they're getting in their pocket. But it's costing us $110 an hour or $120 an hour. The multiplier is way off. It's double for fringe benefits, taxes, insurance and things like that. It's not it's not the same. So the real issue I see is the the cost of giving these benefits, these very rich benefits to the union people actually doesn't show up in their pocket. So when a guy you you could argue that a guy who's making $50 an hour I and mean, what's that 100 grand a year or something, right? Like that yeah. that's that's you barely if, if you're not if your wife's not working and you're not you're not you're not surviving in New Jersey. So So I
1: have have to say, so this is where like, I am like right down the middle here because I have a, my (laughs) mother is a hardcore capitalist, a very successful woman. My father is from this long-term sort of socialist family of organizers. And my brain is just on fire. I want to, I want to talk about it. I want to jump in with Bob and then I want to take on Mark and then I want to jump in with Mark and take on Bob. I'm going crazy (laughs) here. (laughs) It's hard. But, uh, But if I hear you right, Bob, just to understand some of the mechanics there, you are, you operate in the state of New Jersey the new jersey unions are let's just say inefficient or somehow you're paying too much for what you're getting and therefore you're but everyone in new jersey who has to use union labor has the exact same system so there's no real advantage unless you're saying a given project has a choice between a union workforce and a non-union workforce and then there's real competition
0: well i think there is areas where there is real competition. We tend not to work in those, right? We tend to work in verticals that are not as cost-driven, right? Where what we do adds a lot of value to what they do, the bio market the pharma market. I mean, people can talk all they want, but at the end of the day, when the guy makes a vat of stuff and he sells it for a billion dollars and you're arguing with me on a $50 million contract or $30 million dollar contract on 350,000, like it, it, it's, you know, it's more important one month of getting that into market is worth billions of dollars where we're insignificant in that it's more important that I get the quality resource. So, so it's, I mean, I, I don't, I don't have competition or not competition because of union or not union. I work in areas where Binsky brings that value. And those men who I train who happen to be union guys are the best in class so that I can deliver that service. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and take this in a slightly different direction. Which,
1: So, Mark, you were talking about the Starbucks versus the coffee shop next door. Yeah. Not to get too wonky about it, but it, a lot of it has to do with the cost of capital. Starbucks sure. and Apple can access capital at a much, much lower rate than the guy next door mm-hmm. who's using credit cards and things. The institutions mm-hmm. I think Bob thinks of as ideal clients like Pharma and maybe maybe the actual state of New Jersey, things like that, access capital at a far, far lower rate. So if you were saying I'm building a a, a fifty million dollar thing, the fifty million dollars is gonna cost that small coffee shop owner way, way, way more, even if they could get it to begin with, than Starbucks or, you know, Johnson and Johnson in, in in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Right? And so when Bob says he's building high-quality work for clients who can pay for it. We, I think we have to remember that the cost of capital is way less for those big institutions than it is for the small entrepreneur.
2: Yeah, there, there, there's no doubt about it. I mean, for quite a while here, the money to, to build that billion-dollar project is free, basically. I mean, essentially free, super low-cost capital. And so the, the risk is is certainly low in that regard compared to, you know, Joe's Cafe.
1: Yeah, you still want the New Jersey unions to operate well, and maybe mm-hmm. they are, maybe they aren't. You know, maybe the, the 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 over the overhead is just too high for what it takes to get an actual union worker in your place, but but uh yeah, it sounds like your Bob plays in the world where these are big institutions. They do big projects, they access yeah. capital at a low cost, and they can right. afford it. Mark and I run small businesses where we don't, I don't play in that world. I, I just don't. I, am a small business, cost of capital is really high for me. And uh, I wish I could provide that heavy duty layer of services. I wish there was an easy way to access that for the people who work for me, you know, like maybe Upwork could provide that for me or something like that for, you know, for people who are employees or 1099s. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be interesting, right? Would it be interesting if like, if I'm going to Upwork for a worker and I could choose to pay... an hour or $65 an hour. But the difference would be that $65 an hour worker is kind of like a union worker. In other words, they're guaranteed these 10 benefits as, and that's what I'm paying
0: for. I wonder, I wonder if that would would play at all. I mean, we do have a residential business. That's about call it 10 million. We have 50 employees and it it runs separate. Um,
1: And is it union or non-union?
0: It is union and probably the only, only, I mean, we did a, we were looking at across the country, This group we belong to have, let's say they have eight or 900 members in this group. There was 10 of them. But I took this on because I said, you know, I don't think union is the problem. Now, does it cost me more to provide the service than someone else? I think it does. I think it costs a little more. Mm -hmm. But I'm still competitive. So therefore, I just don't make as much money. That's what really happens. It's not that we're not. We're just, there's, and it's really probably a couple points difference on, you know, it's maybe 10% different. I may maybe make 10 or 15% that I can say it's just because we're union, but it's pretty, it's really insignificant in the big scheme of things. Mm-hmm. But the challenge I was brought was that you can't build a residential HVAC business if you're union. I said, hell, we can't. What you can't do is build a union residential business and, and under the same guidelines of, and the same agreements that you would have that would be traditional union mindsets. We took a union and we created a whole nother group and we they haven't gotten a, a raise in their base pay for five years, but we've been, been able to ratchet up the amount of incentive pay and incentive pay in the union world is like, oh my gosh, we can't have that, right? So, right. you know, I think the unions may have to just change and and really it's the world that's changing. They're going to have to evolve and change in order to be around in the future. I mean, that's the real story. They're not the gonna that be hear, able to live that way. The word that
1: I hear whenever I hear people talk about the importance of unions is stability. That unions provide stability in a, in a volatile business market. And whenever I hear that word, I think stability is an aspirational goal for any one of us, including entrepreneurs. But the reality is volatility. And so we always try to provide as much stability in a volatile world as opposed to sort of being locked into these heavy-duty agreements where, God forbid, we experience volatility, the workers will have a constant experience of stability. That seems kind of like what Mark is talking about. There's going to be a degradation in overall capitalism if the workers are guaranteed stability while the managers and owners are experiencing constant volatility. Mm-hmm. I
0: think it's a balance. I, I think eventually the the money runs out, <laughs> and and it, eventually the guy doesn't have health care. It just it's it's I don't it's a it, there's a buffer there's a built in buffer in place so that if I get laid off because of some well, I mean look at COVID right like if that mm-hmm. happens like those people they were able they were able to survive through all of that. And they went back to work pretty quickly because they were essential in many ways because of, so you sort of paid for, for that, right? Like, so it's, it's, it's like an insurance policy. You're paying some additional money for that benefit of stability and stability is not just, doesn't just help the man, it helps the industry. It helps. It's a buffer for all of that. So, you know, if, if the guys don't have that stability, them, then they leave and they go do something else and you lose them forever. Now I don't have a construction worker anymore. I mean, it, the trades, we all know, they are one of the rarest, I mean, there's, we are such a trade shortage in this country and, and, and in the built world. Yeah. It's, it's insane. Mm-hmm. And we can't, so what are you paying a little bit so that these guys don't run away and go do other jobs? Because they're going to survive, right? Yeah. One way or another. So I think you got to look at it from a lot of different angles.
2: From a demographic perspective, Bob, I'm curious around the, the union. I mean, obviously, 2030 is, I think, the last baby boomer will have retired. And so, yes, the millennial generation is, is pretty big, but the attraction to the trades is probably not there. And so we have an ever-aging workforce. We have all these people exiting the labor market. Birth rates are you know, a little below replacement rate. And so these social structures like a union will inevitably collapse because you just don't have the worker base to support it. However, I'm really curious around the age in the union, in the trade specifically, union or not what does that look like in in what you see are there younger people coming into the trades and, and skipping out on college
0: or what does that look like i would say if you kind of grouped it i would say since since really maybe 2018 19 there has been a tremendous increase in the in the in the in the, in the, in the projection that trades are actually a real job like you're starting mm-hmm. to feel In these very, in these last three to five years that when you interview kids, oh, well, your friend's a plumber, he's less than you. And the kids are saying, no, that's a great job. They're making money. They get benefits. So I think you're starting to see that change, Mark. Mm -hmm. Also, what you're seeing is, you know, this huge movement, this this whole diversity thing is a big deal. You know, the construction industry has been plagued with white, pale, male and stale, right? Like that's the (laughs) reality of it. Kind and of like the three of us. <laughs> exactly. Well, look at us, right? I mean, maybe the podcast yeah. world is too and the entrepreneurial maybe. world is cool, but the reality yeah. of that is that's pathetic. Like, because we're only looking at 30% of society when we look at bringing someone in to be a tradesperson. So I think that's moving in a different direction. There's a huge movement towards educating young kids in the trades and getting them to really understand what it means. And the trades have changed. It, they've slid more towards knowledge work. Even someone mm-hmm. swinging a hammer has to use a computer now. He works on an iPad. He, it, it's all that's changing. So, I would say that it was a big, big problem ten years ago. I think it's still a big problem, but I'm starting to see signs of movement towards. Hey, wait a minute. You know, you, you want to be $150,000 in debt after four years of college, or, or after four years, do you want to be a half a million dollars in the positive? Yeah. I you, think
1: that's a great that's a great it's vision. A big deal. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is a big deal. It's a great vision. I I know that I have a lot of entrepreneurs that I communicate with regularly, and we talk about the. This is a different part of the of the conversation of unions, but the trade the technical trade shortage is epic and mammoth and mm-hmm. confounding. But it's great good to hear that you're. You're seeing something better than that. Bob, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast today. Thank you for your insight. You sound to me like, well, you're probably much smarter and more well-informed about it than I am, but that you're sort of like the business person slash uh, progressive. I don't mean in a political label. That's not what I'm talking about, which you may or may not be. I just mean that you believe that work is a place where you know humans come together and they
0: should be treated really, really well. I, I, I believe... I'm in the relentless pursuit of greatness, right? And you don't get greatness alone. So you better, you you actually, you become great because the other people do it for you or they work with you to do it. So yeah, I I am a hardcore visionary. I am always looking 20 years out. Like, what is the world going to look like in 20 years? And I better build my business today or I better be doing the things that's going to get me there. And I better not be only looking in my own four walls. That's really been the big danger of the construction industry. It's that we really struggle with looking outside of the bubble that we've created for ourselves. So I'm the one who breaks that bubble and lets it all come in, and it drives people absolutely crazy. But that's who we are, and you know, and Mark's been around me enough to understand that. Yeah, this wasn't freaky enough for me. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but next time maybe we can get a little <laughs> nuttier. But yeah, I am the I am the antithesis to the construction company owner. Yeah, no question about it. Mm-hmm.
1: Fabulous. All right, Bob, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Yep. Made Thanks for inviting
0: is. me. Good luck with your podcast Thanks, going forward and we'll, uh, we'll stay in touch. Thanks, Val. Yeah, good. Have a great day. Bye.
1: Well, Mark, that was our first guest. We we're like working out our rhythm now. And what do you think of that?
2: I'm kind of changing my mind a little bit here as we look forward. And this was said to me yesterday that capitalism is a methodology. Socialism is an ideology. Communism is an ideology. Capitalism is a method in which you are you have freedom to take your unique ability into the world. People will transact with you if they find it valuable or they will not. There, there's no right or wrong, no moral. It is just, I have something, you either want it or you do not. It is a right. method. It is not an ideology. In it's math. Way. It's just math, right? And maybe a little bit of psychology mixed in. You have a need. I have the thing you need, you buy it. <laughs> we agreed on price. And so when you think about that in in the context of unions, you're really adding two things together, an ideology and a methodology together. And maybe that works in the long run or not. But what I started to really think about in terms of the trades and in unions and the mindsets is you have a demographic issue where... And you have a technology revolution. I've been spending a bunch of time with chat GPT and I'm like, the world is over as we know it. And the immediate thought that I had was knowledge work is dead. And that
1: threatened. certainly threatened,
2: certainly threatened or it's just going to happen differently. Right. I mean p- the productivity that you can have using that technology, it takes you 40 x a hundred X from what you can do. I was just on the call earlier today with my dad, actually, and he's an EOS implementer. He's also a success principles coach and he's doing some workshops. So I just went and chat GPT and said, hey, who, who is the exact target market for success principles workshop in Lewis, Delaware? Gives the gives perfect demographic list. Then I say, write me a LinkedIn post that would be really appealing to this group of people. It writes it and it's really good. And then I say, write this in a way that a five-year-old can understand it, and it's attractive to retirees who are looking for a purpose. Interesting. And it gives a paragraph, really nicely, well-done LinkedIn post, and the job is done. And it took about start to finish 45 seconds, as opposed to what usually would happen is you'd think about it for half a day and you probably would just never post it. And maybe you would, but most people won't. And so now productivity has just gone through the roof. And so when you think about unions and related to a company like Bob in the construction industry, if knowledge workers go exponentially productive, the middle people are gonna really have nothing to do. The knowledge worker who's just not really creative, they're not asking great questions even to a bot, they're going to have nowhere to really go except to things that can't be disrupted, at least now, by a chatbot, because mm. you can't do a orbital weld hanging from a ceiling 35 feet up in the air in a pharma facility. It's not going to help you much. Maybe a little once it goes into sensors and it'll make you do the job a little bit better. Yeah, maybe but...
1: when you're sending a, by the way, I, we just had somebody who went through Birthing a Giants who runs a very large painting company. And one of the things we do in, in Birthing of Giants is we do this thing called One Year from Today. So it's a lot yeah. of future looking. And her future vision was basically taking advantage of drones that could paint high walls without sending a person up there. I mean, well, that, that's see, amazing,
2: right? Yeah, um, you could
1: see AI plus a drone being pretty, you know, maybe they can do those welds. Yeah,
2: may, maybe they, eventually they will. But for the time being, that, that those are very heavily, you know... You need hands (laughs) to do that kind of kind of work, but eventually that'll go away too. But you know, so you start to think, well, uh, the the union construct will be very attractive for people who are making the transition from knowledge work to a trade. Make it feel a little bit more stable. Your point earlier, though, there's still always physical risk with that kind of work, you do have to be intelligent. You have to have all the different components, but there is certainly physical risk to it. It is feeling like lower status, but I think that's going to go away. And I think the demographics will force it to happen.
1: Yeah. I think this is super interesting stuff. I get hung up on, you know, we went through COVID where we had this person we were all introduced to called the essential worker Mm -hmm. and was really, really defined as this person who's going to actually go out and go to their place of business when that in and of itself is actually dangerous. Like that was a huge thing. Mm -hmm. Then we have these people who are really getting used to working from home. And when you say to them, go to the office, they, I mean, I, I am kind of appalled at the response of people who say, no, I won't. There's, there is reason. There are good reasons to stay home. It can be, you can be very productive, but when the work, when the company says you need to be at the office sometime for them to say, I won't, is such a rejection of the essential workers who every day, school teachers, police officers, yeah. grocery store clerks, put themselves out there. And for us to say, nope, not le- not getting, not putting on pants. I, I, know, I don't want to give up my comfort, you know, like
2: yeah. I don't, yeah. I'm and then when those pants. folks
1: say I need to be protected in the workplace, I I do, my, my head kind of does spin.
2: Like, you really? know, like, you know you're crazy. just using that as an excuse not to commute. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I, you know, commuting is the word we use. I think it's about putting on pants that are hard as opposed to soft. (laughs) My jeans are too tight now because I spent COVID eating. (laughs) I think, I think it has a lot to do with that. Yeah. So anyway, these, this is, it is, you started out by saying this is a complicated topic. It sure is because there's, there's so much from what is a knowledge worker and what does it mean? What is the role of technology and, And what does it mean to provide stability? It just goes on and on and on. It's a really complicated situation.
2: And places like Michigan, you see that they are, they were, they became a right to work state, which means that people can opt out of a union. And now they're going to reverse that, it seems, to go back to not being a right-to-work state, which means that mm. you have to be part of the union and you have to pay the dues whether you like it or not. And really, that's because the acknowledgement of a union organization has a very hard time competing with one that isn't in, in a lot of ways. And so they're looking for for equity there and they're trying to force it in. And, and so I have a, a a quote that might set us up good for an, another conversation or it might res- end up in hate mail to me but it's an economist will durant and he he wrote that freedom and equality are sworn and everlasting enemies and when one prevails the other
1: dies i like it i like it that is the place to conclude our conversation today as you just mentioned if people have an opportunity to comment on this and send us hate mail or love mail well that would be really cool to hear because we just took a shot at this topic in a half hour well we, we may have you know We may have made things worse. We may have. (laughs) You never know. I've been known to make things a lot worse. (laughs) All right, Mark. Thanks so much for joining me today. And thanks for inviting Bob. He was super cool. Awesome.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of What I See, where we explore the stories of the visionaries shaping our world. We hope you found inspiration and insights from our guests. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode and continue to be a part of the conversation. See you next time on What I See.